All right, today's teaching comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Again, the theme is the conscientious Christian life. And the Apostle Paul says to his young ministry companion, Timothy, the following. He says, Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's Word. And this is the last week. We're looking at First and Second Timothy. We're in chapter 3. We've been doing like two months or so on First and Second Timothy, this worship series. And those of you who are super on top of things know that this isn't actually the last chapter in Second Timothy. Uh, the last chapter is Second Timothy 4. But chapter 4, it, it, it really continues the theme of chapter 3 and has some final remarks. But thematically, everything that the Apostle Paul is going to touch on on these letters has been touched on. And the basic theme of the whole deal is that the Apostle Paul is writing to a young ministry companion, a younger guy named Timothy, who is facing a lot of opposition, partially because of his own personal insecurities, probably, partially because other people just perceive him as not quite Paul. And Paul is writing to Timothy to combat timidity. He's encouraging him to be courageous in his faith, to not compromise in his faith. Even though there's going to be people around you, a culture around you, false teachers, even that jump into the church, who they say things that sound so nice to our flesh. It sounds so sweet to our flesh. Our flesh wants to believe it, but it's not God's word. It's not true. So don't compromise. In fact, these false teachings, they are a poison. They spread like gangrene. And taken to their logical conclusion, they actually can cut people off from Jesus Christ. So stay strong in the faith that you have learned, the truths that you have learned. He actually does. I'm going to jump into chapter 4 to get a summary of everything that we just read in 2 Timothy 3. In chapter 4, he says, Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For, listen to this line. This is fantastic. The time is going to come when people just won't put up with sound doctrine anymore. Instead, to suit their own desires... Here's what they're going to do. They're going to gather around them a number of supposed teachers who just say the stuff they want to hear, who just teach them what itching ears are wanting to be scratched by. It's a great line. Demonic forces, fallen flesh, and an upside-down world, Timothy, is going to do everything it can to detract and disrupt you accurately teaching God's word. Don't worry about it, though, because I've overcome this world. Everybody who holds to the truth of God's word is going to end up on the right side of history come the day of judgment. So hold to the timeless truth of scripture. In the meantime, get ready because you're going to face some opposition. Inevitably, 
uh, what the Apostle Paul says actually in our specific text, he says, Timothy, you know all about all this. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions that I suffered? Timothy is actually from the city of Lystra, and Paul's not referencing all of his persecutions. He's referencing only the ones that Timothy was intimately aware of uh, before he even entered into ministry. He says, Timothy, you knew me, you knew me personally. You know the sufferings that I experienced experientially. Just like Jesus said to his disciples, if they persecuted me, what makes you think they're not going to persecute you? If they opposed me and I'm perfect, what makes you think they're not going to oppose you and you're less than perfect? But you try to carry my message. Of course, Paul says the exact same thing to Timothy. What he's doing, what he's doing is he's conditioning his expectations about a fallen world and ministry in a fallen world. Now, if you don't know, this is a tremendous resource for Christians. A proper understanding of human nature and the evil that exists in the world. It, at first glance, it might sound very pessimistic. It's actually a very powerful resource for navigating a fallen world. Some of you have heard me say this before, but it's been clinically proven that people with a relatively naive understanding of human nature are significantly more susceptible to things like PTSD than people who have a proportionately more balanced view of human nature. Now, the truth is anybody can experience PTSD, and there's certain occasions where it's especially likely to occur. Military combat is one. Watching somebody else do some kind of heinous crime uh, is another. A childhood abuse is another one. Those are the most common occasions. But get this, it's not just that you witness tragedy, it's that you see human agents who bring tragedy. It's not just a matter of perceiving tragedy, it's a matter of perceiving malevolence. That's what causes the trauma. And with kids, kids are particularly susceptible to this. Why? Because they're inherently trusting. And they haven't yet been conditioned to be cynical about a fallen world. And therefore, when an adult who's supposed to love them does something that they would have thought in their brains to be unthinkable, that's particularly traumatic. For that matter, I also remember reading once that uh, for those who are in military combat, again, another high trauma situation, it's not simply watching other people do terrible things. A very common source for people is watching yourself do things that you previously would have thought, I would never do something like that, right? What's the common denominator? The common denominator is actually really the underestimation of wickedness that exists in the world an underestimation of the evil forces that exist in this world. I remember something C.S. Lewis, Christian writer, once said uh, that was really good about the balance between naivety and pessimism in the Christian. And he puts it like this in one of his essays. He says, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you will find it quite intolerable. If you think of it as a place of training and correction, well, then it's not so bad. Imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it's a hotel. Half of them think it's a prison. Those who think it's a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable, but those who thought of it as a prison might decide it's actually surprisingly comfortable. So what seems the ugly doctrine, he's talking about original sin and the fallenness of mankind. What seems at first glance like an ugly doctrine is actually one that comforts and strengthens you in the end. The people who try to hold an optimistic view of the world would become pessimists. The people who hold a pretty stern view of it become optimistic. The first time I ever read that, I had to read it a couple of times to make sure I understood what he was saying. But I, to me, it's a little more helpful to think of it like this. Imagine that you're standing in a Motel 6. Okay, have you ever been in a Motel 6 before? You're imagine you're standing in a Motel 6, but you're blindfolded. And you get in there, and somebody 
who works there is, is, says, okay, take off your blindfold and you get to stay the weekend in the honeymoon suite at the Fister. And they open the door and you walk in to the Motel 6 room. Like, I'm a little disappointed. You know, I was I maybe, I don't know what my expectations were, but a little. On the other hand, if you have committed a crime and you are going to spend the rest of your life in a maximum security penitentiary, same situation though, you're actually in a Motel 6. You're blindfolded, you take the blindfold off, they swing it open and say, you're going to spend the rest of your life in this. You walk in and you're like, they got cable. This isn't all that bad, you know? Right? What's the difference? Expectations. What you believe is coming. Emotional wellness, emotional wellness to some extent is adjusted by appropriate expectation. You get that? Emotional wellness in life to become resilient it's absolutely very much adjusted by expectation. And what correct doctrine does is it teaches you the nature of humanity and God's power over the evil forces of this world. It gives you appropriate expectations. So it gives you emotional and psychological wellness. What Paul is saying to Timothy, a young minister, is, Timothy, don't be naive about ministry. And don't be naive about the evil forces that exist in this world. You need to understand the fallenness of human nature and simultaneously understand the power of God and God's word over the evil forces in this world. Okay, He has already overcome the world and you navigate this life by submitting to the inspired word that he has given to you. So we're going to talk about leveraging the power of that word here today under these just two points. Number one, all scriptures God breathed. Two, all scriptures useful. Okay, It's God breathed and it's useful. First of all, all scripture is God breathed, which is there in verse 16. The verse right before that, the Apostle Paul said this to Timothy. He said, Timothy, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That phrase, holy scriptures, uh, in Greek it's hiera grammata. It, it, it literally, if you're just going to translate it literally, you'd probably say sacred letters, like alphabet letters. And the insinuation seems to be, remember, Paul has already said, Timothy, you had a grandma and you had a mom who instructed you in God's word. And actually what he's saying, when he says sacred letters, he's basically insinuating from the moment they taught you your ABCs, they were teaching you Hebrew scriptures. That's probably how you learned your ABCs. Uh, Jewish people in, in, in particular had a really strong understanding of where our people came from, the things that we faced, and the Hebrew scriptures as the foundation for their worldview and every, everything that they looked at in life. What exactly does that mean to say all scripture is God-breathed? Now, in context, the Apostle Paul is talking about specifically the Hebrew scriptures. Remember, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. 2 Timothy is part of the New Testament. So when he says all scripture has been God-breathed, he's saying the Hebrew scriptures are all inspired by God. We, in retrospect, can say, yeah, the New Testament we know is equally inspired as part of all scripture for three basic reasons. Number one, Jesus, when he spoke, he said, I speak with the authority of myself because I'm God. So everything that I say is equivalent to the holy sacred scriptures. Number two, before he sends his spirit at Pentecost, he says to his disciples, I'm going to give you my spirit and they're going to give you the words to speak. They're going to give you the words. The spirit is going to give you guys the words. And therefore, you will have authority from the spirit of God. And finally, Thirdly, when the New Testament writers write, not a single one of them says, uh, like, this is just my own ideas that I came up with. Every single one of them says, we, were, we spoke from God as we were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This isn't our word, it's God's word. And for that reason, we can appropriately say and correctly say, this isn't Paul's word, this isn't 
human ideas. This is God's timeless truth. By the way, there's a bunch of implications to that. Scripture paints itself into a unique corner when it says it's all God-breathed. That means if you find something that is scientifically, uh, morally, or historically inaccurate, you might as well just give up on the whole thing. It's making a major claim about what it's capable of as all of it being God-breathed. What does that phrase God-breathed mean, though? Uh, the Greek word for breath is pneuma. It's also the same word for spirit. It's the word for spirit. It's the word for breath. It's, it's by the way, it's where we get our English word, that oddly spelled word that you got wrong on every spelling test uh, as a kid, pneumonia. Uh, it starts with a P. Pneumonia starts with a P. You can thank the Greeks for that. It comes over from pneuma. Pneumonia is a breathing affliction, right? Uh, so it's just medically taken right over. But the idea of it being God-breathed is God is saying, I use the conduits and mediums of flawed humans, but because I'm God, I'm able to push it through to the other side and still get a perfect product. It's the same thing that God did, by the way, with the birth of Jesus Christ, where he can take something perfect, put it through sinful humanity, and on the other side, bring about a perfect product. He does that with scripture too. He pushes it through flawed, sinful human beings, but on the other side, it's God's word, not man's word. Interestingly enough, you know, in that process, here's what it's not. It's not God like possessing a human and uh, they like are in a trance and they start writing things with pens in their hands and stuff like that. That's not inspiration. In fact, God doesn't, he never actually strips the writers of their own individuality. All of the writers of scripture, they have their own unique vocabularies. Just like you and I each have our own unique vocabularies. They all have their own unique teaching style. Just like you and I have our own specific style of talking and phrases that we use. Uh, I remember the first time I read uh, an article that explained how if you take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, the book of Jude and the book of James. Now remember, Jude and James are the earthly brothers of Jesus Christ. What you will find is that their native vocabulary is much similar to one another than to the other authors in Scripture. Their teaching style is much similar to one another than it is to the other authors of Scripture. And anthropologically, that makes perfect sense. Why? They were raised in the same house and they got the same education growing up. God never strips us of our individuality. God doesn't replace us in ministry. God redeems us in ministry, okay? So properly speaking, though, what comes out on the other side, it's the unique vocabulary of that individual, but God uses the context, the settings, the language of that individual. But when it comes out on the other side, it's not that guy's words. It's God's word, properly speaking. It has the authority of God's word. Now, that has all sorts of implications, but here's the biggest one. When you run into something in Scripture that offends you, that you just don't like, and you will, if you're, if you're fully reading your Bible, you will run into things that you don't particularly like or are very inconvenient or uncomfortable for you. What's going to give? How are you going to deal with that thing that, that you don't like? I'll tell you, a lot of people end up doing. A lot of people, when they find something in Scripture that they don't particularly like, they'll say, well, you know what? That is a really old document. And uh, those people lived a really long time ago. And it's not, it's, it's regressive, it's not relevant. It's, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people, for instance, in the sciences, who said like, yeah, the creation stuff and the miraculous stuff, like that's, those are pre-scientific people. They just don't know what they're talking about. They think everything is God's doing. Or how many times talking to people uh, when the Bible talks about like uh, the sexes, gender roles, and how many times people will like very, with like a hurt feeling, say like, yeah, Paul was just a chauvinist. 
Or how many times people will say things like, yeah, Jesus is the savior of all, but you can only be saved by calling on him. Maybe everybody, maybe he saves everybody, but everybody just uses different vocabulary when they come to him. And it's all the basically the same thing under different names. So they're offended by the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. That's the wrong approach to the Bible. And I'm not just saying it's wrong morally. I'm saying it's wrong logically. And here's why it's wrong logically. If God is by definition timeless, because he exists outside of time and space, he created time and space, he exists outside of it, he's timeless. And you and I exist in one specific linear moment, time, place, then anything that God says, because he's timeless, it's equally true a thousand years ago, today, or a thousand years from now. Anything that you or I think or feel or say is particularly true in this moment, conditioned to this time. So whatever he says is always going to be more authoritative than us. Not to mention the fact that if God is perfect, and by definition, he has to be because he gets to define what perfection, what good and evil are. So God is by definition perfect. If you have enough humility to admit that you are something less than perfect, what are you going to do when a truth claim of scripture collides with your own personal feelings and thoughts? People do one of two things. There's only two options. Either truth claim of scripture, your personal take, your personal feelings, Either you change your Bible because you don't like it, or you get rid of your Bible or ignore that part altogether, or your Bible changes you. Those are the only two options. If you're proud, you'll always change your Bibles. If you're humble, the Bible will always change you. Nobody's ever said this better, as far as I can tell, than what uh, the, the way Tim Keller puts it in The Reason for God. He puts it like this. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. And that kind of God, that's a God of your own making. Not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, which, by the way, is just like a real relationship and is like a marriage, actually, only then will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not some figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible, that's not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for a personal relationship with God. You get that? That's absolutely right. You want a real relationship with God, then you, you have to let him, like in any other real relationship, Somebody gets to speak truth. They get to contradict you. How is God going to contradict you if he can't speak to you authoritatively through his word? Eh? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is also all useful. Here's what Paul says in verse 16. He says, Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I'll tell you what, for the vast majority of my life, whenever I saw this verse, what I thought it was saying is scripture does four things. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains, Right? And then I remember reading something from somebody who understands uh, language studies better than I do, and they said, in the Greek language, uh, whenever you see a list of words in order, you have to figure out what the relationship between those words actually is. In other words, like, because I'm a native English speaker, when I see a list of words with commas and the word and, I think of it like a grocery list, like this and this and this and this and this and this, and they're all equally, you know, they're different, but they're equal. In the Greek language, whenever there's a chain of words, you have to figure out what the relationship between them is. And therefore, by studying this a little deeper, one of the things I learned through a number of commentators is, look, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, the overarching term is the one that he starts with, teaching. It's a broad term. It's a general term. It's like an umbrella term. 
It doesn't describe the process. It's the overarching word for the process. But the process itself looks like this. The process of what Scripture does when it teaches us is it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us. It stops us in our tracks. It turns us. By the way, what this is, is it's the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ that picks us up, cleans us off, and makes us correct with God, objectively. He makes us right with God, and Scripture proclaims that. But he doesn't let us stay where we're at. He meets us where we're at and redeems us, but he doesn't let us stay where we're at. He grabs, he grabs our hand, and the Holy Spirit walks us along and trains us with the right way to live according to our design. He trains us in righteousness, okay? That's the process. He stops us, he turns us, and he walks with us. Uh, it might be a little bit easier to remember if I give you like an illustration of this. Think of this in like real time. Let's say you're learning how to rollerblade or roller skate or whatever. I can't do, the reason I'm using this illustration is I can't roller skate. I can't do anything where you have to strap anything to your feet, like skis or skates or blades or wheels, or I can't, like shoes I can, I can do, but like anything else, it's like a weird weakness. Uh, but I know enough to know like the physics of it, like roller skating is not like put on the roller skates and then lean as far back as you can and then just start going, you know, like, no, you're going to fall. Or lean as far to the side as you can, you're going to fall. Uh, when you defy the design of the roller skates, you get rebuked. You fall down, okay? One of the ways that God rebukes us very often in life is when we just do things differently than what he tells us to do them, and it blows up in our face. That's part of the disciplining. That's part of the rebuke. But you can avoid that, those difficult situations, simply by reading what God's design is, because he'll, he'll tell you right in there. Something that goes against your fleshly instincts, he'll say, stop, don't do it like that. Do it like this. Stop, you have fallen. So like the process that Paul is describing in scripture is you read through something and it's like totally opposite to what your fleshly instincts or what our culture is doing. It picks you up and says, but you're forgiven. Jesus Christ has made you correct with God. He lifts you up. He cleanses you with his redeeming blood fully, freely, and, and he loves to do it. And then he says, but I want better for you. So take my spirit and I'll walk with you like training wheels on the right way to actually do this. Okay? That's the process. And all of scripture does that. All of scripture is doing exactly that if you allow it to. Let me give you a couple applications of this before we close it out. And I think this will maybe hopefully help you see what I'm talking about too. Because it corrects you in different wrong ways. So for instance, let's talk about just parenting for a second. Let's say you're the type of parent who just despises the idea of your child being upset. And maybe, maybe you grew up in a place where you witnessed or maybe even experienced like borderline abusive parenting yourself. And so you're very sensitive to like authoritarian type of parenting. But you overcorrect, you overcompensate, and you just never discipline your kid. Okay, well, that's not ideal. And you can figure that out. When you read through scripture, if you're reading through scripture faithfully, at some point in time, you're going to come to Proverbs 13, 24, which says, if you don't discipline your kid, you must hate your kid. The person who spares the rod spoils the child. If you don't discipline lovingly, you actually are not loving. You're, you're hating your kid. What does it do? What does that do? It stops you from your instincts. It turns you around and the rest of Scripture will teach you the writer way by God's design. Let's say you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, though. Opposite, not in the, like, still wrong, but the opposite end of the parenting spectrum. And you're like, yeah, you don't have any problem with discipline. 
you run a very tight ship and when you're in your house and you raise your voice and you say jump, everyone asks how high and that's the kind of parenting you do. But then you read through scripture and you come across Ephesians 6, 4 and it says what? Fathers, don't exasperate your kids. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You have to be patient. You have to be gracious. You can't have unrealistic expectations for kids. You can't live vicariously through your kids. That's unnecessary pressure. It's not loving. Uh, be gracious. Don't exasperate your kids. See, it's the, exact, it's the exact opposite problem, but Scripture does the exact same thing. It stops you, it turns you, and Christ walks with you and trains you. Let me give you a different example. Let's say your, your money. Let's say you buy into the basic approach of our society, which is a little bit of like the keeping up the Joneses thing, right? Like they're doing this with money, they're doing this with money, maybe I got to have to do this with money too. Uh, but you're reading through scripture and then you come to Luke 12, 15, where Jesus says, watch out, avoid greed, uh, because life does not consist in the abundance of your stuff. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you don't, you're not like tempted by stuff in life and you consider yourself kind of minimalistic and, and not materialistic. But one of the things that I've actually found over time is like what the way to get money usually is to work. And if you're not really into stuff, maybe you could just avoid work. And sometimes people who, like, they say, I'm not into stuff, but they really just aren't really into work. And so you're reading through Scripture, and what does it say? In Ephesians 4.28, what does Paul say? No believer can be lazy. They all must work, doing something useful with their hands. Why? Not for themselves. So that they have something to share with those in need. It's the exact opposite spectrum of the same problem. And Scripture handles it the same way. You have to stop. Christ picks you up by grace. Christ empowers you by grace to do it the way God designed. Final example, human sexuality. Uh, if you believe just what our culture essentially teaches about human sexuality, sex is nothing more than an appetite and everybody's got their own different taste buds and so you can satiate those taste buds however you particularly like. But then you're reading through your Bible and you get to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 that says, God the Spirit is trying to dwell inside of you. You know, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus redeemed your body with his blood. The Spirit is trying. You can't just unite it to anything or anyone that you want. It belongs to him. It's his, it's his dwelling place. It stops you. It turns you. And Christ walks with you. Or maybe you're at the opposite end of the spectrum and you're on it. Frankly, we've all, we all know Christians like this. It's a safe space. They're a little bit prudish when it comes to human sexuality. And, uh, but then you're reading through your Bible and you read through Son of Sons. And you read through Proverbs 5. Take a minute today. Uh, and you start blushing when you realize what it's actually saying. And you realize prudishness is not God's design for your human sexuality either, right? It's totally different errors, but God addresses it the same way by stopping you, providing a rebuke, correcting you, and forgiving you with the grace of Jesus Christ and then training you in your actual design by the empowering grace of Jesus Christ. So that is how Jesus uses scripture in your life, but what we haven't yet said actually, I've only kind of danced around it, is who is this Jesus? Well, this Jesus is actually what the Bible calls the word made flesh. He's God's perfect son. He's your best friend. He obeyed every command, both without fail and without any arrogance. He's the Lord and master of the whole universe, but he never actually lords it over the people of the universe. Instead, he weirdly chooses to love us so much that he lays his life down 
to die in our place and take our sins. He takes our sins, he gifts us his righteousness so that he can become the savior of the fallen people, the savior of those who are frankly kind of stubborn and don't even really want to be corrected, the savior of people who are still trying to achieve righteousness through their own works. He's the savior of it all. He's the word made flesh and getting to know Jesus, the best way to do it is to get to, get to know the word because he's the word made flesh. Best way you get to know Jesus personally, read your Bible. Here's the key to it though. You cannot read it like another book. This is the kicker. You don't pick up the Bible. It picks you up. He picks you up. Let him pick you up. Let him hold you. Let him speak sweet truths into your ears. Let him correct you and lead you and let him make you through his word into the person that you are destined to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we simply ask that you sanctify us by the truth because your word is truth. In your name we pray, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.